0: The Anchored City podcast is recorded in Anchorage, Alaska, on the traditional lands of the Dena'ina Athabascan people.
1: I have heard the oldest stories that the wisest man ever told. And I cast aside My worries And just went Digging For gold And I will scale The highest mountains Looking for the Bluest blue But of all the roads I'll ever walk I just can't
0: have you. Hello and welcome to this special Between the Seasons edition of the Anchored City podcast. I'm your host, Joel Kiekenfeld. This podcast seeks to connect with Anchorage's soul through her histories, stories, and people. February is Black History Month and on this episode we're considering the black history of Anchorage. Preston Jones in his book, City for Empire and Anchorage History, 1914 through 1941, which was published in 2010, writes For Anchorage, the only case of willful segregation uncovered for this study came after its period in 1948, in the form of a covenant in the Airport Heights neighborhood prohibiting the sale of property to any non white person. While Jones in his book is not ignorant of the racial history of Alaska, This comment fits into a narrative that I've heard many times in Anchorage, a belief that discrimination against the black community was not present in Anchorage, or certainly was or is less than other places. My guests today are David Reamer and Ian Hartman. They're the authors of a new book titled Black Lives in Alaska, a history of African Americans in the far Northwest, which tells a different and more complete story of the black community's history in Alaska. You might know David Reamer from his weekly Anchorage History column in the Sunday Anchorage Daily News, his Anchorage History tweets on Twitter, or other work on the history of Anchorage and Alaska. David was a previous guest on our very first Between the Seasons episode back in March of 2021, and we're so excited to have him back on the podcast. Ian Hartman is an associate professor and the department chair of the Department of History at the University of Alaska Anchorage. He edited, along with James Barnett, a 2018 book titled Imagining Anchorage, The Making of America's Northernmost Metropolis. Now, here's my conversation with David Reamer and Ian Hartman.
1: That I have yet to cross, and I have dreamed of faraway places, where imagination just gets lost. I would search the wide world over For one proverb that is true But of all the roads
2: I'll ever walk I just, I can't have you Hi, I'm Ian Hartman. I am Associate Professor and Chair of the History Department at UAA and I have um, obviously hurt somebody in a former life because I'm currently serving as Faculty Senate President, and I, um, I'm i not here to talk about that experience, but I'm sure we could.
3: <laughs> I am David Reamer. I'm a historian of subjects wide and sundry, public and scholarly, trying to bring history to where the people are.
0: Great. So we're talking about you you all uh, relatively new book, Black Lives in Alaska. So the first question I would have is that neither of you are African American. So why write a book about um, Black lives in our state?
2: I guess I'll be happy to to uh, try to provide some answer uh, to this and knowing that it it probably won't be, um, you know, complete, but just as maybe a little bit of backstory here and then David can certainly fill in some blanks and you know kind of answer this from, uh, from his perspective, but this was kind of a, a little bit of an accidental project I um, somebody who is who's long been interested in histories of social movements and histories of race and public policy. And so if we were to go all the way back to 2015, which was the centennial of um, the, the founding of the Anchorage town site, there was a book that came out that I was a co-editor on called Imagining Anchorage. And what we had tried to do was really put together about 20 plus essays that covered you know, a whole range of, of bits of uh, of Anchorage history. And one of the pieces of that history that that was kind of left out at the time was just kind of a a very brief history of civil rights in 1950s and 60s era Alaska. And so I went ahead and, and kind of volunteered to write what I thought was going to be a, a one off chapter in this much bigger volume on um, on Anchorage history and, and David was of course instrumental in, in that research as were a few other folks at the university again at the time going back now, gosh it's hard to believe it was six or seven years ago. Um, and so, out of that came the chapter, but also this this corpus of research that was actually quite extensive and far beyond uh, what we could have possibly written about in a single chapter. And so, um, at that point, you know the idea was to really try to um, go out and talk to folks in the community and do some oral histories and network and and try to kind of um, tell the story a little bit more comprehensively, which is um, which is what this which which is what this history is.
3: Precisely, and from my perspective, it was a chance. I had gone into this accidentally as well. I had gotten. Um, Before Ian was part of Imagining Anchorage, I had gotten pulled into a very small oral history of Fairview, which had put me in touch with a shockingly relatively unknown and untold story of East Chester Flats, of a Black community in what is now Fairview that got raised off of this earth. And the book was a chance there was just a shocking amount of material, a shocking amount of material that had never been told before stories that existed maybe locally orally, but just weren't written down or eroding in serious danger of being forgotten completely. And while we're not black, I like to think that we leverage what privilege we had in getting this book out there and making this available. It's my hope that this isn't a last step, but this is a first step for making a lot of these sources, a lot of these material, a lot of these narratives available for future research, for future people to read and share, for future historians to take and do deeper and greater, I hope, histories on this material.
2: Yeah, and just to a- add to that point, I guess to maybe reinforce the incompleteness of this, there are probably no less than we'll talk about some of these folks in this interview, I'm sure, no less than maybe 10 or 15 people who very truly deserve their own biographies who, you know, we we touch on, but don't don't do justice. And so um, I, I think that that's certainly one place to start. And, and you know, again, I I think the word privilege that that David brings up is really important here. I mean, certainly my position is one of privilege as a white guy at a university, I, I have some access to um publishing and the national park service to leverage some grant funding to get uh to get an earlier iteration of this book out and so um you know if we were able to to do some of that um that's that's great but again the caveat here is that you know we we don't, we don't lay claim to this history. We don't own this history. We are not sort of the, um, you know, we're not the voices of authority here. It's, it's really my hope that this can, you know, this history can kind of flow through us and can reach a broader audience. And then others can kind of pick up on topics that they think maybe we didn't do justice to, or, um, or kind of continue on. So that would really be my only um, addendum to, to David's insightful point.
0: Well, I, I know that you worked with a number of other folks in here and that the forward's written by Kelvin Williams. And in the forward, he talks about as a historian of Anchorage's Black community and someone who's lived a good chunk of it. I was particularly particularly excited to assist Ian and David in this book to ensure that we get it right. I would love to have you all talk just a little bit. What was the role of folks like Kelvin, like public kind of historians and those that have lived the history? What was their role in the making of this book?
2: Well, it doesn't happen without them. I mean, to be honest with you, like, I mean, we can David and I can go to the archives, and we can, uh, you know, we can go through newspaper databases, and we can do some of that stuff. But, but frankly, if we don't have community involvement, the the, the history is not only is income, is it incomplete; it's it's probably um, wrong, right, for for a number of reasons. And so, you know, somebody like Cal and I would mention. Uh, Ed Wesley and uh, Eleanor Andrews and Celeste hodge I mean, you know, there are really too many names to to kind of single out at risk of, you know, not not naming someone else. But, um, you know, it, it's, it's a history that comes into the contemporary moment. And so there's just a real necessity, I think, to kind of, um, you know, open it up to the community and really seek that kind of involvement.
3: Precisely. Um... I mean, we tried talking to some people at different levels. One of the things I did is I went deep with this local Black church, the first Black church in the state. They're in, you know, one of the constant fears is that highway to highway connection between Seward and the Glen. They're afraid of government taking their land because they're right on Ingra. And they thought being on the National Register gives them a small buffer against that. It can happen. Churches have been taken before by eminent domain, but a little protection, a little recognition, and it was in talking with them. uh, It's actually where I first was told. One of the people I was talking to just said, "You know your privilege, right?" And I was like, "Yes, like I just use my privilege, get their church on the national, you know, register, get this book out there eventually." And and that's good. that's Greater
0: Friendship. Is that the church that you're talking about? Yes, greater-,
3: greater Friendship over in Fairview on Ingro. <laughs> um, been in the same spot since the early 1950s, <laughs> making them positively ancient by Encrypt standards, <laughs> especially once you move out of downtown. So well,
0: there's no way we can hit on everything in the book. Like I really enjoyed reading it over the last couple of weeks and learned a ton, but because this podcast focuses mostly on Anchorage history, I'm going to kind of focus us there as we go through the conversation. So um one of the things that I found really interesting is a couple of early um folks. So you guys tell a great um history of how folks ended up here through the gold rush and through other means and through whaling and so on before Anchorage was ever even a thought. Um, but then a the couple of early folks that showed up were um, Tom Beavers and then also um, a baseball player that we just know him as AG, if I'm saying the name right. Um, could you tell me a little bit about the early those two early folks that show up pretty early in the history of at least Anchorage, not necessarily in the state, but of, of the city?
3: AG unfortunately there's not a lot of material on him. He shows up he was a railroad worker. Um he was a baseball player. The, it's important to know that the team, you know, at least in 1915 was integrated. I as I recall his occupation with the railroad wasn't listed. And I've always had this sneaking suspicion that he was a ringer in some sort. Baseball was it's hard to overemphasize how important baseball was to these people, like they were immediately carving baseball bats. Whalers, when they were traveling Alaska in the 19th century would bring gear that they could bust out onto the ice and play like makeshift games. Or if they were trapped in the ice, they would, you know, their ships were in threat, but they would go out and play baseball games to pass the time. Um, that's most of what we know about A. G. that he was there, that he was allowed to play baseball. And my sneaking suspicion that he might have been a ringer. Someone knows. He, uh, he may not have even actually
2: worked for the railroad. Is that what your suspicion is, David? Oh, worked for the railroad, paid by the railroad. Okay.
3: Little other reason for him to be up here, but yeah, he, he was a railroad guy. He was on the railroad team, but I I feel like his baseball prowess might have been his primary appeal, at least in that moment.
2: Yeah.
3: That's a suspicion. That's the sort of thing that the records, you know, we can, we have no real picture of who he was as a person or what his life was like. Yeah. Nowhere near granular their lap.
2: Yeah. And, and, and Beavers is, is an interesting fellow because he, he was not at the time um, recognized as, as black. I mean, he was one of many people around the country and, you know, here in Anchorage, there are certainly other examples of this that David and I can talk about, that um he was he he did pass as white and it was only upon his death uh when it became clear that you know his family from virginia uh was of african descent um he's he's a pretty notable figure in early anchorage because he's he's involved in the in the fire department first paid fire chief he's somebody who goes on to uh to serve kind of locally and is a representative and he's also somebody who um, seems to really have the respect of um, of early anchorage. Uh, again, I mean, you know, the, would he have had that respect if if people identified him as African American? That's probably, uh, you know, probably not. I I don't think uh, David may may want to want to add to that. But nonetheless, I mean, you know, he's he's actually I don't I don't know if I would call him like a a town founder, but you know, I mean, he's in that first generation of like civic leaders. I think I would maybe call him. Uh, also helped
3: establish rendezvous.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Great point. I mean, on the property, he and some other investors went in on uh, this property around M Street that was later uh, foundational to what we know today as the Fur rendezvous. So, I mean, you know, he he was not this uh, bit player. I mean, he was actually someone quite central to um, to Anchorage at a, at a pretty formative time in its development. Um, and, and he was here for a while, right? I mean, you know, another thing that we know about Alaska history is just how kind of transient this place is, right? I mean, you know, we we see this today, and this has been true throughout its history, but I mean, you know, people kind of come and go, and uh, and Beaver's really made this his home. Uh, You know, he came up through uh, from the South, from Virginia, made his way through the Pacific Northwest up to Alaska and, um, and stayed here until he died. And was and he died prematurely in an unfortunate accident in the 1940s. And so he was somebody who left his mark and, uh, you know, somebody who I think people should, should really know and recognize as, again, if not, um, you know, kind of an early founder, but certainly kind of an early civic leader of Anchorage.
3: Uh, on the point of him, whether or not he would have had the success if he was, his Black ancestry was known, I don't think so. I think he knew that, which is why he didn't have his family come up here. His sister came and got his body, which according to the legends is one of the reasons how the town people learned Bevers is secret. I mean, Anchorage was found as a town, just racism was baked in. even. You know, besides Alaska NATO's pushed out and not allowed to participate in much of the town, you know, functioning, Um, even white people from, you know, Southeastern Europe, bohunks, as they called them then, which was a flat out pejorative in those days, they weren't allowed to live in town, let alone buy lots. There's no doubt to my mind that Bevers would never have been a fire chief, would never have been a city councilman if, you know, he had not passed as white.
0: In, in a way, what you're saying—the the the matter of sort of racism baked in from the beginning—kind of leads me to the next question that I had for y'all. I was really interested in the post World War II period, in, in I think chapter four of the book, where there's this sort of national coverage in the press, in like Ebony and and, and Negro G- Digest and Color and some other publications, and even locally. in um, I was fascinated to discover the Alaska Spotlight. I had no idea that there was a there had been a black paper in the city at any point i mean really several. what's that there have been several yeah which <laughs> i yeah had not run into so that was really interesting to me um but there was sort of the at least from what i gathered from the book there was sort of this positive light that was being shed by these articles of kind of what life was like in alaska for for black folks um but the reality was quite a bit different and even like i you know, the, the the spotlight talking about the Chicago of Alaska, which I find really interesting as well, being from the Midwest. So could you speak to that, that post-war era? There's this, on one hand, this like really kind of positive press kind of thing that's happening, but the reality in the city ends up being quite a bit different. What does that look like?
3: Well, they, they use these type of comparisons. Those are just like litter on the ground in those days. They're always saying, oh, we're the San Francisco of the North. We're the Chicago of the North. We're the Minneapolis of the North. We're the Miami of the North. We're the New York of the North. These things are just everywhere. They all want this um, connection to established establishment in the lower 48. They wanted these people in charge of Anchorage, the Chamber of Commerce, the politicians, the powers that be, the money holders, they wanted Anchorage to be another one of these lower 48 towns. So those comparisons are like, constant in the newspapers of the day. I wanted to point that out.
2: Yeah, and and, in David will say can say more about George Anderson too the the fellow who was uh, publishing a lot of these papers but you know I mean he he would qualify in, in my mind as I guess kind of like a I don't know like an old fashioned booster you know I mean he was somebody who I think was was obviously you know clear eyed about about the nature of racism and discrimination I mean he he saw it he would have lived it but yet I think he also felt that you know this was this was his state and this was his town and he was going to do what he could to kind of get behind it and support it. And so when the Alaska spotlight or the midnight sun come out with these, these pieces in, you could probably call them puff pieces, you know, really kind of playing up the business opportunities for African-Americans. I mean, you know, it's, there's something to it, and in, in a sense, I mean, you know, there, there's a. This is part of the Great Migration. This is a place where, um, you know, we don't think of it as a spot along the Great Migration. Certainly not in the same category as, um, you know, Chicago or Detroit or Oakland or you know, even Seattle for that matter. But, um, but yeah, oh, I of
3: course Seattle of the north.
2: Sorry, <laughs> yeah, Seattle <No>. of course. <laughs> but, um, but yet I think you know that's part of what I hope is the is maybe the contribution of this book is that we can maybe kind of position Alaska in this bigger context of of a migration that occurs right I mean you know we think of ourselves as kind of apart from the history that have that has kind of defined the lower 48 or you know Alaska is exceptional in some way shape or form and we don't really have the same kind of historical through lines as other places. But, you know, we actually do in some pretty critical ways. In other ways, Alaska's history is quite exceptional. I'm thinking of like, you know, the indigenous history up here and the, you know, kind of the the lack of connectivity through a road system and our kind of reliance upon, you know, a small population spread across this, you know, big area is, is fairly unique, I guess, certainly in comparison to other states. But in other ways, you know, we, we do have a fairly, um, I think, traditional pattern of fitting into US history. And, and you know these newspapers, I think illustrate that and some of the boosterism um, also, I think kind of uh, reveals that too.
3: I mean, as Ian was saying, this is very much a part of mid-century American history. This great migration, these people wanted jobs. They wanted opportunities. These people were escaping the South where there was much less likely jobs and freedom and opportunities. Um, I have found stories of people who work their way north slowly, bit by bit. We're leaving Texas. We're working in a shipbuilding plant in Oregon in the 1940s. We moved to Seattle. Jobs are running out. Let's move to Alaska. They're booming there in the 1940s. Construction jobs are everywhere. They wanted these opportunities. And speaking of all of those, you know, ebony and color and jet magazines. Like the fascination with Alaska has been part of American culture since Alaska became a part of America. But even then, in these magazines, there is this clear, even in the Black culture and the Black journalists, the Black magazines, they were fascinated that there was a Black community in Alaska. There's in many of them, there's even that hint of shock themselves, like how did we get here? You don't see this for black communities that existed in Minneapolis you don't see these articles running over and over during the 1950s and 1960s and once they got past the shock they all dove into the like what are you doing there the jobs are good this is amazing this is an article we can print yeah
2: yeah the I mean Alaska has has long occupied a I think a sense of novelty in the American imagination. So we we probably shouldn't be too surprised that it would it would occupy maybe that same place in like you know the the kind of the spot of maybe, you know mid century black popular culture. Uh, one of my
3: absolute favorite people that came up during this search was a uh, black journalist called Herbert Frisbee out of Baltimore, who came to Alaska several times because he was just this was an alien world. But he came here and he saw people. He knew and he understand and was his gateway into this strange new world of Alaska for him. He found black communities that he could talk to. He could travel to the North Pole. He could follow the Alcan engineers building the highway. There, I mean, I talked about it. There's this hint of surprise, but also there's the hint of joy that they were included in this you know, construction of a new place as they saw it.
2: We need a biography of Frisbee. FYI. I love Frisbee. <laughs>
3: There's
0: one of the many people, right, that you were talking about at the beginning that could have that's their the own first one. I'll, yeah. I'll keep an
2: ongoing
3: tally. Is, is yeah. They're they're like, like, no one knows about Frisbee now. And I'm like absolutely fascinated with this guy. <laughs> like, so yeah. for getting his way up there. He was a World War II reporter, um, embedded reporter. <laughs> All of these things. That's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> Very, I he, would read that book. <laughs> yeah. He's one of the best ways we know of you know, people in the community in the 1940s is because he would go up there and like talk to Tootsie Crosby or he would mention Zula Swanson, the Black Madam turned um, many things, turned many things, including real estate magnet. Yeah. Like he's a key link in the literature where otherwise there would be a bit of a gap.
0: So one of the, the things that stood out for me in the book is this is the Eastchester or Eastchester Flats neighborhood. Um, and the history there has already been mentioned of this neighborhood sort of disappearing. Um first of all, what was the what was Eastchester Flats? Or what, you know, where was it? What caused it to exist? Um, we can just start there, and then I have I have more questions, I suppose, about that as we go along, but um. Yeah, let's start with that. Where is it? What caused it to exist? It's kind of the same in this post-war era as well.
3: Um, all of what is now Fairview, Fairview neighborhood in Anchorage, that was originally called East Chester. East Chester Flats was the part of East Chester uh, down by the creek, the southern edge of Fairview. Once you get like past 15th, down by the Senior Center, that was the Flats.
0: I guess what differentiated that then from the rest of the neighborhood, what what we now know as Fairview, um, what what was the what made the flats different than maybe the other parts of the neighborhood? Because it had sort of this unique culture and this unique um, place, sort of place in the city, even though it wasn't officially part of the
3: city for a long time.
2: Um,
3: so as encouraged not- Boons in the 1940s. Oh, go ahead. Again. No, no, go no, go ahead, David. Um, I was going to say it was where they were where newly arrived black people could both could and were allowed to live. Um, Anchorage went to this massive transformation in the 1940s. It was a nothing, you know, little railroad stop in the 1930s and before, once you get past the actual like construction of the railroad. 1940s, they um, 1940 they start building the base. Construction boom. Town goes from like four thousand to more than thirty thousand in a decade in the area, booming past the city limits, just blowing past it. And in all these new communities, they're having to ju- you know build brand new little subdivisions. And in many of them, they baked in housing discrimination. These discriminatory housing covenants that would be on the deeds and on the um, forgetting the word plats. But you know that literally would be a list of restrictions saying you're not allowed to subdivide this land, you're not allowed to build a bar or dance hall on this land, and you're not allowed to have anyone of non-white descent live here or to sell to anyone of non-white descent. And in some cases, they'll even be so explicit as to say, yes, you could or yes, you couldn't have someone of non-white descent stay there if they were a maid. So these are prevalent throughout much of the new housing stock in Anchorage. You see these on the Deeds in Spinar. These are on there to this day because they don't go away. You see them in Turnagain, you see them in Airport Heights, you see them in parts of Martin Fairview. You see them going um, west towards um, or east towards Russian Jack, uh, south towards Sound Lake. These were the new housing communities. and. There was a black community in East Chester Flats because this was a place at the edge of development of Anchorage at the time. Rogers Park on the other side also had um, white-only restrictions. This was an area where they were actually allowed to live. you can, other areas like Mountain View, a little further east, uh, like Nanaka Valley, bits of Russian Jack. These are places where you saw um, black families come and live. But Eastchester Flats was the most welcoming. It's where you started seeing the start of families that built a place that built businesses and built a community, again, only where they were allowed.
2: Yeah And maybe just to provide a bit more context I'm I'm kind of reminded of um, Samuel Delaney, who's the great black science fiction writer and social critic. He talks a lot about um like inner zones and places that that are that are seen at once as kind of like, Vice districts that have been kind of pushed off to the side and have been kind of relegated to to places where where marginalized people will will live, but where kind of other people will come and congregate and communicate and and just sort of kind of commune. And so one of the things that was so interesting about Eastchester Flats was that it was a place that had a pretty um, serious, notorious, infamous, fun uh, entertainment district. And it in you know, despite the fact that it was predominantly people of color who lived there. and, and you know, David could probably correct me if I'm wrong here. I, I wouldn't I don't know if it was if it was ever was it black majority? I mean, it was sort of pluralistic in some ways, but it, it was black be, majority. It was black majority for a period of time. Um, it certainly was
3: annexed. They're saying like um, annexed in 54 into the city probably. They're saying there's around 4,000 black people in the city and they're almost all congregated in that little yeah. section of modern Fairview.
2: But for the But for the people who would actually come and and hang out and party and drink and patronize the businesses, those were folks kind of from all around Anchorage. And so there's there's these these quotes of service members who were who would come through and it was pretty clear that they were having a little bit too good of a time and they were told no uncertain terms, you will not go back there. (laughs) And and so it it develops this reputation as being, you know, at once a, a, a black community and and a place that is, you know, kind of to use the term ghettoized, right? I mean, kind of pushed apart from um, the, you know, proper developments in in Anchorage, but yet also has this kind of certain appeal, right. I mean, it's it's a kind of quintessential, story of um of American urban history, right where you know you've got these these neighborhoods and these enclaves that um that white folks don't live, but they're kind of more than happy to come and 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 kind of, you know party there and to uh, you know experience this culture in a way. And so I think that's also part of um part of Eastchester Flat's rambunctious history
3: yes it it was there. I mean, it wasn't just the bars and the the dancing and the process. I mean, it was the place where you could go get the liquor that wasn't available anywhere else, where you could go buy weed. Um, but it also there was a little black-owned hotel where you could actually stay at if you were black, as opposed to many of the other hotels, which didn't let you in. Um the best chicken place in town, the chicken hut, things like that that were also there for the community. Yeah. Um but although. It's primary reputation, especially outside the community. So the people living in the community, it was their home. This is where they lived. They walked from there to school. This is where they ate. But for people outside the community, it was definitely this riotous red light district. Um, The base did finally install signs even saying servicemen not allowed in here. Yeah.
2: Which, which really made the, the decision to engage in urban renewal, which is just another word for destroying a neighborhood and community, I think. Um, that's what justified it, right? You know, I mean, in, in all of these places, what, what is oftentimes lost on on the part of white developers, or if not lost, certainly sort of ignored, is that these are actually communities and that these are places where people have forged these kind of meaningful connections and relationships and have started these businesses and that they're um, they're places where people can really take care of each other. Um, and so, you know, there's a reason why we don't really refer much to East Chester Flats today because it's it's been destroyed.
3: Everyone there was forced to move. Yeah.
2: So you mentioned earlier, I wanna stick with this
0: urban renewal bit um, just for a little bit here, but um, in part of my life, I've spent some time studying urban stuff. So this is really interesting to me. Um, but as I understand it, at one point the neighborhood was essentially surrounded by the city, but not technically part of the city, right? And then you mentioned it being annexed. like. What are sort of the the years that that happened, and I think even in the book it referenced that there was very little law enforcement like at that point because it wasn't really considered part of Anchorage or was l- sort of left alone um, to sort of operate as it was operating. So how did that that relationship shift from like you were saying this is a neighborhood where people live and have built businesses and have you know done all these things, and then it gets annexed and and kind of bulldoze, like what's sort of the timeline of that? How did that all happen?
3: Ooh, that's complicated. Um, I'm sure it is. <laughs> because you're talking about a bunch of different little governments and very different government styles. But in short, city of Anchorage is a small town in 1939, 4,000-ish people. Um, the census got counted in Alaska in 1939, that year. So it's, we're on. The town is basically downtown, edging into south Edition, not the full south Edition. no, not going as far south as the creek, and the little bit of government hill that was built at the time. And then east to about uh, Cordova, I think, something like that. Anchorage was small. But then when you have, you know, almost 30,000 more people show up, it has to boom past that. Mountain View gets built. uh, They start subdividing immediately in 1940. Uh, Fairview and Spinard. Mountain View had the obvious appeal because it was between the base and the town proper. Although it's fun when you look at the aerials of some of these little areas from the time they're distinct, there was undeveloped spaces between them and the town proper. It's fascinating to look at. And Mountain View and Spinard, or excuse me, Fairview and Spinard incorporate as well in the late 1940s. And they amount to view were what were called public utility districts, basically very limited forms of government that had the power to collect taxes um, for the most basic of services, basic roads, street lights, things like that, Um, what little support they wanted to give maybe to a fire department or animal control. By their very nature, they tended to be very conservative. When they could, they wouldn't even collect taxes. But as the city is growing, it's still having all these services. It's having all these demands on those services, but its tax base was a minuscule fraction of the actual population, even a tiny fraction of the people that were using services in the town. So in a time of great boom, in a time of great jobs and wealth and money flowing around everywhere in town, where everyone was seeming to be doing great, uh, the city itself was going broke, broke like now. They eventually have to tell the base like you can't come use our schools because you're not in the city of Anchorage, you're not paying us anything. You, you teach your own kids. And so they start pursuing a aggressive series of annexations. The residents themselves had to vote. Um, Eastchester is one of the first, Mountain View and Eastchester flats. Get annexed in 1954. One of their primary appeals for annexation, they thought, and what they were told was that they were going to be connected to the water system, buses are going to go into your areas, you're going to get back, you're going to have snow plows, everything's going to be great, garbage is going to get picked up. None of these promises are kept. Um, Fairview itself doesn't get annexed until 1959. There's a legal battle that continues. Spinard. Most of Spinard stays independent becomes eventually the borough of Anchorage, Anchorage area, greater Anchorage area borough, and that leads all the way into the merging of the borough and the city of Anchorage into the municipality of Anchorage in 1975, if I remember correctly. So you have all these little beady governments fighting each other uh, for what could be done. A lot of times you have developers just... I'm building a thing. that's taking too long to do with a public utility district. We're just going to build our own little water mains, connect to the city, pay for it all. And this way, this is the only way we're going to sell our land first.
2: Yeah, and But it was maybe, these promises. Yeah. And just to add a little bit to that too, I mean, you know, there, there's a lot of federal funding at stake here, right? I mean, we're talking about the 1950s and 60s when the federal government is pumping a lot of money into states and municipalities to build roads, to build, whether it's interstate highways, whether it's sort of larger public access points. And so from the perspective of, of Anchorage City, I think that there's a real appeal of trying to annex, to try to you know claim as much of this, this federal funding as possible, um, which will then, of course, be used to, to kind of open up still more room for development, which is really going to, you know, the question then becomes kind of who's in the room when these decisions are being made and whose voices are going to be elevated. And typically it's going to be the, um, you know, what you might think of as like the the local power elite, right? You know, these are going to be your developers, your local politicians, your kind of, you know, people who who are in the, the chamber of commerce, who have a certain kind of idea of what kind of businesses are legit and what kind of businesses maybe aren't. And so there, you know, that's at play too. And so, you know, when we're talking about 1950s era Anchorage, like there's, um, as David points out, I mean, not only is the town really growing, right, you know, kind of as a result of the Cold War and Alaska becoming far more geopolitically strategic, um, there's also potentially a lot of money moving through. There's, There's money moving through in the form of a tax base, but there's also money moving through in the form of federal funding.
3: Yeah, and the town needed all those residents to actually be in the city to count. Yeah. Uh, when, when we're saying there's over 30,000 people in the Anchorage area in 1950, only around 12,000, I believe, is the number actually living in Anchorage. All these other people are out there in your mountain views and Spinards and Fairviews. <laughs>
0: So I guess thinking about the city today, is there anything left of the flats? It, like, if could you go to, I mean, obviously the lands there, David Chicken has had no already. Um, my sense is, from what you've been saying and what I was reading, it's sort of where Sullivan Arena is now. Um, no, not. Okay, correct me,
3: <laughs> please. Uh, you have to go past, um, between Ingra and, uh, what's the last one? They're like Orca. Those are like the streets that form Fairview. Okay. Um, so east of the stadium, um, south of 15th.
2: Okay. But the I, I would say though, the they're related, right? I mean, I, I think that, you know, the the fact that you do get that development through, I guess what we'd call kind of like, you know, that stretch of midtown, right? I, you know it, it doesn't necessarily overlay Eastchester, but it does I think reveal the the idea of development, right? You know what what is going to be what is going to be elevated in all of this is going to be roads, three or four lane roads going north, three or four lane roads going south, and then kind of structures, right? whether that's a car dealerships, whether that's an arena, whether that's an ice skating rink, whatever it is, those are going to be the things that are going to be more um, valued in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s than these um, these communities, of course, that have been marginalized over the past, you know, generation before.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I guess one last question before we move on from, from this era, but one thing I found fairly interesting that you, you all were mentioning earlier on is the amount of sort of big-name entertainment um, folks that were moving through the city and and playing here so like billy holiday t-bone walker those are the names that are kind of coming to mind which it seems interesting to me in a a small town um be a town that's not easy to get to um and then inside of the town there's an even smaller um black population like what did your research show? Of like that, that just is really interesting to me. I mean, one of the complaints I've heard in the twenty-something years I've lived here is like nobody ever comes here. So I found it really interesting. Like from entertainment perspective, I found it super interesting to go like, oh, I know who these people are, and they were here, you know, a long time ago, like when the town was much much smaller.
3: That that was the complaint then. These were all transplants. The black community—they were transplants. They wanted music and performers of a certain quality and celebrity that they do everything from strippers to cross-dressers to all the way up to people like stomp gordon and billy Holiday. t-bone were paid a hefty amount of money there are these ads in some of the like showbiz papers at the time that they were so much money was coming through these bars at the time that they could afford to do this, but that they were still having to pay these entertainers massive amounts to get them to come up here. But these were the expectations of these transplants. They weren't up here for a wilderness Alaska frontier experience. They were up here to make money that they couldn't elsewhere, but also they had expectations of living a life, entertainment wise especially, that they were accustomed to from the lower 48.
2: Yeah, it, that, that's such a good point, David, and, and it it does really, to me, kind of reveal the, I think, the tension with mm-hmm. uh, with the old Alaska license plate, which I, I'm probably embarrassingly enough have right now that says, you know, the last frontier or whatever it is. I mean, you know, sure, th- there are those people, I think, who do come up here to Homestead. There are the, you know, for people there, this is like a kind of a, a, a wilderness jaunt and there is this kind of old settler mentality. Um, among a segment of the population, but but I I think the probably the more prevalent direction that people have gone is that you know they get here and they realize wow it's this is cold it's dark <laughs> it's lonely I mean how can we how can we really form a community here and, and bring people in and, and have a good time and. And, you know, make this a place that is that is livable. And of course, that means that means having entertainment opportunities that you would find elsewhere. It means, um, you know, having a place to go and, and and have a good time to get through the cold, dark nights, whatever the case is. And so I, I I don't think we should necessarily be surprised at that tension, but I think it's definitely worth pointing out, you know, my I guess my my favorite story with Billie Holiday, aside from the fact that you know she was here and there's amazing photos of of her um, that the Anchorage Museum has, uh, including one that is in the book. Uh, she went on to claim that she was going to live here, um, and and she she never actually made good on that on that promise. I guess, but you know, I mean, at least I, it's hard to know if, if people are are just kind of you know blowing smoke or if they really do have a positive experience. But uh, but she was one of these people who who did have really effusive things to say about uh, about Anchorage and seemed to enjoy her time here. And, you know, the uh, the concert she was I mean, she was she was only going on at 430 in the morning for a third set some of these nights. I mean, it was it was just incredible. I mean, to think about Anchorage as like a kind of a vibrant 24 hour town. Um, you know, it, 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 that may not have been been the case all the time. But, you know, at least for for a few of these moments, like, yeah, I mean, there there was it was really the place to be.
3: Yeah, there, there were these demands that you can see bubbling up before the boom when Anchorage was a 2,000 to 4,000 people town. Like, we'd really love it if people from the lower 48 came up. We'd really love it if we got some musicians we've heard of. Instead, you they had to form their own opera association or, you know, concerts. And then even those didn't tend to last very long. They had to be their own entertainment. That desire was there before, but not the money or the um, just the social capital to bring people up the opportunities.
0: Yeah, it, the playing three sets a night that you know, including one that starts at 4:30 in the morning, really speaks to the demand and the the amount of money that could be made. I mean, that yeah, it's just fascinating to me to, to start a set at 4:30 in the morning. <laughs> it says a lot about what was happening in Anchorage at that point in time. I want to jump jump forward a number of years um, to the mid '80s when the they're building the um, performing arts center and proposed that it be named after Dr. King um, and sort of this movement to have that name not appear on the on the building. And obviously, there's no spoiler alert here since it's not named the Dr. Martin Luther King Performing Arts Center that it was successful. But would you mind sharing that story a little bit about that? era and what happened with that um, that wave of kind of public building that was happening in the 80s. Uh,
2: well, I, I can mention a few just, you know, a brief, uh, brief context. And, uh, and, you know, David is always just, you know, chime in and let me know if I'm missing anything. The uh, this is kind of one of those classic moments, right? I mean, in in American history, right? You know, like I one of the things I'm I, I'm really invested here is trying to kind of put this all into context. And so, you know, you have the 1960s and 70s, you've got the Black Freedom Movement, you've got this kind of uh this really powerful movement that has made great strides by the late 70s and 80s. It's sort of, you know, Reagan's morning in America. You've got this backlash. And so um, one of the things that we see here in Anchorage is that that the 1960s and 70s is a moment of social mobilization. We see this among Alaska natives, we see this with the Native Claims Settlement Act, we see this with um, you know, the, the kind of Alaska's variant of the civil rights movement. And uh and, and there there's pushback against it. And so by the time we we move into the 1970s, particularly with like the oil boom, with a kind of a different demographic coming into uh alaska there's a lot of um you know to put it charitably strident pushback to put it maybe not so charitably but arguably more accurately white supremacy um there's there's this movement i think to really um reassert kind of uh white control over the over the city and and over the state and so when there is this movement to name the performing arts center after martin luther king to um to get alaska to to um, recognize martin luther king day by the way that's kind of part of this whole other uh debate there's uh there is a vocal contingent of people in the community who are aggressively uninterested in it and and they will and they will put up opposition and in this case they're they're successful uh and and, and you know not to kind of jump too far ahead but in a lot of ways i think that that previews the the divisiveness that we see today in our community, right? I mean, you know, it's. I don't think I'm going out on a limb by saying that we live in an era of divisions, and that a lot of these divisions are fueled by by racism, and so those currents, I think, are very much so still with us. Um, that particular episode that you're talking about, I think, is, um, you know, one one revealing moment among it. Um, excuse me, among many.
3: I mean, as you were saying, it was also MLK Day. This was a national trend at the time, striving for recognition after, it's tough to overstate how much white people, there wasn't a great amount of support for Martin Luther King among white people when he died. Um, attempts to honor him at the time were viciously stomped down in the legislature. But come the 1980s, there's that growing national trend. They wanted to name the Performing Arts Center. I'm very influenced. Um, it's not a visible part of anything I ever do or write, but I'm influenced by conflict theories out of sociology. This idea that what happens in moments of conflict are more revelatory of a true nature of a society than you know, events during relative peacetime. When things were going along just well. In this moment, you started seeing N words just dropped in popular discussions during the assembly. You saw the honors for Martin Luther King devolve from the Performing Arts Center, brand new building, one of the centerpieces of Project 80. It's going to be a shining Mm gem in downtown Anchorage. It goes from that, okay, Ninth Avenue, Major Street. We all have to go past Ninth Avenue to where we are today, where Martin Luther King is a street where just so happens no one actually lives on, just a couple of government buildings.
2: Yeah, thanks for mentioning that, David. I forgot about the 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 um the ninth the, the ninth avenue connection there. And, and I'll also mention you know some of the folks who are involved in in that the assembly you know we've we've just lived through the last couple of years of this like what's it, 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 it we're still living through this incredibly rancorous time um between the assembly and the mayor and you know we're seeing these these outbursts um what David is describing is is a reminder that that this is also part of Anchorage's history uh these these really really acrimonious racist debates that um, they're not debates. I, that's the wrong word. I, I shouldn't. I shouldn't call them debates. They're they're acrimonious, racist actors who uh, who decide to use their um, their voice in in these really public forums in in ways that are um, really really sad, for lack of a better word. But it's but you know it's part of the history and we should know it. Well said. Maybe in light of that, I'll ask this question. Um, this, this
0: episode will be going out right at the first week of February. So Black History Month. And having written this book, what would you want folks to know? I mean, other than where to get the book and read it, which they should definitely do, in my opinion. But what would you want folks to know um, about the history that you all have written about of, of Black lives in Alaska? What would you want people to take away from that?
3: One of my biggest ones is just that Black people were here. They were part of the building of Alaska, from whalers to politicians now. They didn't just arrive with that wave of people after World War II. They didn't arrive with the pipeline. They've been here all along. This is a history that has been here all along, if previously poorly pushed into the public.
2: I, I, I would I would agree with that. That's a great place to start. I'd, I'd I'd also say that you know there there are people in the community who who know the history. Um, there, there are folks, there are again, stories that, that we have inevitably missed that, that certainly need to be told, um, that this is, this is really, I, I'm hoping, um, one part of a much bigger story to, to, to tell. And I also hope that, you know, it's, it's part of what I, we might think of as like a a broader turn in interpreting Alaska's history in a much more inclusive way. You know, I mean, we, we've had, Um, no no offense to Bob Bartlett or, um, Ted Stevens or Don Young. I mean, you know, we, we know a lot about certain Alaskan figures and, and they're important people to be, to be clear, but, you know, there's, there's a lot more to the, to the history. And, and I think if we, if we start to really kind of take a little bit more of a, of a wide angle lens and, and view Alaska as the diverse state that it is, um, we can, we can learn a lot more about this place that we call home. So that would be, you know, kind of a, a top line consideration on my part. And then I think also just the, for people to maybe just recognize that in addition to to there being this like long history of African Americans in Alaska that, you know, predates uh, the Treaty of Session and American colonialism, Um, It would be that there are these two strains right that there is this kind of virulent strain of um, racism and white supremacy, but there's also this strain of resistance and opportunity and so both of those stories I think need to be told in in equal measure for us to have the, the full story.
0: Well, I'll ask the final question that we always ask our guests, and that is: Is there a spiritual or self-care or mindfulness practice that you do that keeps you centered in the work that you're doing? So, kind of this question of: What do you do to keep yourself grounded in the work that you're doing?
2: Hmm. Well, do, do you want David? Do you do you have one in mind, or do you want me to go here? I'm happy to.
3: <laughs> um, I mean, this is the one. Ian has heard me talk about this before. Is that I bounce around topics because yes, like doing some of this history, some of it is triumphant to unearth and present. Some of it is ugly and absolutely soul ravaging to read about what happened, what happened so easily and so often, and what I do often as practice and also because you don't get into historian if this isn't you know more than profession but just also what you do in your time too often is um unless you become a um faculty president you know, those things happen <laughs> uh, if, if you make those unwise paths but anyway what i do is i i find light subjects that clear my mind clear my soul um I, I just wrote about hippies invading Anchorage. These sort of things make me happy about history again and go do something serious like housing covenant research, and I'm back into it again.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I'll start by saying one of the things that I, I very much so look forward to. I don't know if this qualifies as mindfulness, but I look forward to reading my Sunday Anchorage Daily Times and uh and and reading what David has to say. And I think he's done everybody quite a uh uh, quite a service, Anchorage Daily News. Sorry, I'm stuck in in, in my in my history here. I'm thinking about we've like read so thing. many daily old Daily Times articles. Yeah, coast exactly. Coastline. I'm I'm revealing my myself a little bit here. I, I look forward to my Sunday ADN and reading David's comments and in his in uh, his his commentaries and insights and how he connects the you know Anchorage's past to the present. So that's certainly something that I, I look forward to and and value for his, um, his contributions. I, I, I'm a, I'm a reader, you know, I mean, when I have the chance to actually read it, I'm not kind of wrapped up in, faculty meetings of one kind or another, or, you know, doing research or writing on my own. I'm, I'm always looking for for books to to read or something that I, I may have missed. And, and the one that I'm reading right now, and I, I think, David, if you haven't read this, you'd, you'd get a big kick out of it. You probably already know about it. it it's an old book, um, Mr. Wilson's Cabinet of Wonders. It's about the Museum of um, Jurassic Technology in LA, which, um, embarrassingly enough, was I'm, I, I only found out about in like the last couple of months and I've kind of gone down the rabbit hole learning about. And so um, I, you know, I, I kind of, you know, I, I'm invested in writing, you know, very official and uh, important histories, but also just kind of like learning about fun aspects of history that maybe I, I didn't know whether that's here in Anchorage or whether it's this small little fake museum, if I can call it that, uh, in, in Los Angeles, whatever the case is.
0: Well, thank you both for taking time to talk to us a little bit about this important history. So I really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, thanks, Joel, for having us. (laughs)
3: Thank you.
1: And with all those lessons learned, with the crazy long life that I lived already, and the scars I earned, I still can't see. All the questions The loving you just once was worth it even if I. My
0: can't. thanks to Ian and David for joining me. I highly recommend their book Black Lives in Alaska: A History of African Americans in the Far Northwest. If you enjoyed our conversation, you should read their book. You will not be disappointed. In light of our conversation of early Anchorage residents A.G. and Tom Beavers, I want to encourage you to check out a couple of our Between the Seasons episodes from the past. For more on Anchorage baseball, and a tiny bit about A.G., check out the two episodes titled Safe at Home, Baseball in Anchorage, released in the summer of 2021. For more on Tom Beavers, check out the episode 4th Avenue and E Street, the intersection of Black History Month and Fur Rendezvous, from February of 2022. Until next time, I'm Joel Kiekenfeld. Be good out there. Anchored City Podcast is grateful for a grant from Resonate Global Mission and a partnership with Street Psalms, both of which contribute to making this podcast possible. And we're grateful for you, our listeners. If you are grateful for what you are hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and recommend us to your friends. You can support this podcast by selecting the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative at smile.amazon.com when you shop at Amazon so that when you make a purchase, Amazon donates to us. Resources used to make this episode can be found in the show details. The Anchored City Podcast is a production of the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative. The mission of the collaborative is to train the heads, hands, and hearts of urban leaders to love their city and seek its peace. When we say peace, we mean the desire to see a world where all things are the way they're supposed to be for all people. Find us online at AnchorageUTC.org or on social media at AnchorageUTC. Our theme music is by Anchorage's own Monica Lettner.